We uh, there's not a rule that you have to do, use the three subs. You don't find us competitive. Um, he's he's the best left back in Canada, without a doubt. Alrighty, hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Third Sub Podcast, episode 76 to be exact as the road to 100 continues past the third, uh, the three quarters mark and today we have a very special episode. But before we dive into it, I'm your co-host Alexander Gongi-Ruzik. I'm joined with, as always, by Samuel Rowan and Sam. We haven't chatted in a little while, but... Uh, we got a loaded episode today. We got some big episodes on the on the way the next few weeks. So heading into this fun period of podcasting, how are you holding up? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's a beautiful day, and I'm excited to chat primarily some Canadian women's national team. We've kind of held off on breaking down the She Believes Cup because we wanted to bring on the right guest to do it with, and today we have that guest. So I'm excited to get into it, but uh, also you know break down a little bit of Canadian men's news, um, talk a little bit of white caps, kind of touch on everything, but I think the, the focus of the show is on the women's national team. So if you're if you want to learn more or you just want more analysis and discussion, this is a good episode for you. So um, I'm excited. I think this is this is a good precursor for for what's to come in terms of uh, women's national team content. I mean, we wanna we wanna definitely have more shows like this in the future, and it's good that they're playing games because. Uh, Ever since last year, they haven't really had much of a chance to to play games, and they finally came together, played some games, gave us a lot to talk about. And heading into the this Olympic year, we'll have plenty more to come. And I think if today's episode's any indication, there's going to be a, some good chats in in our future in terms of Canadians' women's national team content. But without further ado, Sam, you mind uh, giving a quick quick intro on our guest before we dive into uh, the interview itself? Yeah, it's a guest that we haven't had on for for quite a while, actually far longer than I thought. I felt like we'd had her on more recently, but Harjeet Johal writes for the Equalizer, writes for Pro Soccer USA, bumps around, does a lot of women's sports coverage, also covers the Vancouver Whitecaps. Um, All her work is great. She's always on calls, asking the difficult questions, getting in people's faces when need be. Um, And so she's a great friend to have and, and a great person to have on the show. So enjoy the interview. All right, everybody, and we're joined by a very special guest, Harjeet Johal, Pro Soccer USA, The Equalizer, Daily Hive, wear of many hats, Har hot takes. We're going to be hearing a lot of them in the next few minutes. So, Har, thanks for joining the show. And uh, Alex and Sam, it's always a joy to come on the podcast and talk football with you guys. So thank you very much uh, for having me today. It's a lovely sunny day in Vancouver, and I'm ready to get chatting with you guys. And it is a sunny day. I agree. It's it's nice to to kind of get the summer vibes going. It's certainly making these afternoon podcast uh, recordings quite enjoyable. And I mean, it was a sunny tournament of soccer down in Florida for the Canadian women's national team. One heck of a transition there. And first of all, just to to start off hot, what were your initial thoughts on on the the, the first few games under Bev Priestman for Canada's? women's national team. I think we saw some good things. We saw some not so good things, but I do think 
we, for the most part, reaction was positive from those who watched the team. I was really quite impressed with that first game against the, the U.S., the number one ranked team in the world. I thought that was clearly the highlight uh, of the tournament for Canada. You know, they're missing players. They haven't had a camp in almost a year, and they came in and they went toe-to-toe with the U.S. for most of the match, obviously conceding that, that one goal that was late. But, yeah, the, the defense was fantastic. Vanessa Giles was great. Uh, Shalina Zadorsky at the back there. And, you know, Steph LeBay had to come in from out of the cold when Kaylin Sheridan got injured. I thought that was the, the best game that they had. Obviously, they missed some uh, scoring opportunities at the other end. And, you know, that's been an Achilles heel for the team for, you know, a lot of years, finding goals and supporting Christine Sinclair. Uh, that was a, a great game. I was just I was just so happy just to see the team back on the pitch and seeing them being able to play a game. So that was great. Uh, the Argentina game, maybe not so great. They got that late goal there in stoppage time to earn the win. But I think maybe they need to, to convert more chances. Uh, they obviously dominated the match with possession, but, you know, they really didn't break them down. They bunkered back there and played a lot of defense. So, Canada has to kind of work on that. And, you know, there's going to be teams like that at, at the uh, Olympics and whatnot. So Canada's got something to prove upon in there. And then the final game against Brazil, I think maybe they were just a little bit tired in that first half. Obviously, they conceded the two goals. And, you know, they did play better in the second half. So they had some chances to get back in the game. Overall, I'm, you know, I'm happy they had an opportunity to play in the tournament. I thought Bev Pressman's tactics were you know, spot on. The team really looks confident, more rejuvenated. They look a little more uh, upbeat and, you know, they, they look lively out there. And I don't really think we saw that in the last year with Kenneth heiner Moeller. So I'm hoping the team can kind of build on that. They've got two uh, friendlies coming up in April across the pond against Wales and against uh, England. So hopefully they can get some of those players back and, you know, go in and get a result because England's a, a top 10-ranked team in Canada may have to play um, that squad, uh, Team GB, I believe, in the Olympics. So hopefully they can go over there and uh, get a result. And Rian Wilkinson's now with the Lionesses, so there's kind of some some cross-mingling there. So we'll see what happens. It's exciting. It's just great to have them back on the pitch, guys. So just in terms of like notes from breaking down those matches, I think something you pointed to that kind of stood out to me as well was just the there were a lot of positives in the play, but the sharpness, especially on the offensive end, the finishing end was just a little bit lacking. Like the chance creation was there, but a lot of the times just couldn't quite put it together. Do you just put that down entirely to rust new systems, you know, just getting back into the swing of things or are, are you concerned about the finishing overall? Cause it has been a problem in the past for this team. I think it's a, a mixed bag, a smorgasbord, really, because, you know, they have the chances, they have the players. Some of these players are playing over in England, you know, they're playing in leagues across the world. And so I think they just maybe need some more time playing together. Obviously, they're missing the, the greatest goal scorer of all time, Christine Sinclair. So having her back will certainly help getting used to some of these tactics. I think that's something that the team can kind of take in. But, you know, they've struggled to score goals at the World Cup in France, four goals in four games. You know, they need more goals. You can't uh, depend on a, a nil-nil draw or maybe a one-nil win because a lot of these teams, they can score goals. So Canada needs to find goals. Uh, I don't know who's going to score them, where they're going to come from. 
but you know, it's the same kind of tune. It's a broken record and you're going to have to find them from someone from who I don't know. So hopefully they can get that going because you know, goals, you need goals to win games. It's very challenging when you do not put the ball in the old onion bag. That's the white caps. <laughs> but I mean, just moving on from that, you mentioned players absent. I feel like it's only important that we talk about it because for all the, the good we saw there, there was the overlying storyline of the fact that Canada was missing the likes of Christine Sinclair, Diana Matheson, more for, for injuries and maintenance purposes. And you go across the pond to Ashley Lawrence, Kadisha Buchanan, Jordan Hoytema due to France's quarantine laws. How... When you factor in those absences, does that impact how you view Canada's overall play at this tournament? And then kind of as a follow-up to that, how how much of a difference do you think those players will bring, say, in April, if they're able to play for Canada in those big games against Wales and England? I think those players are vital to Canada's success. You look at the names you just rattled off. You know, how many of them are starters? Those are big-name starters. Most they're- of them. They're players that should be in the starting lineup. You know, they're playing over in France. You know, that's that's a, one of the top leagues in the world. So they're important for Canada. And I think having them back, I think it will certainly make a difference. It will give a, a lot of confidence to the team throughout. And, you know, not having them at the tournament, it did kind of create an opportunity for the young players to kind of get their feet wet, to kind of get in to the game, get into, into the thick of things, get into the mix. And, you know, there's there's very limited roster spots for the Olympics. You know, there's not a lot of availability. A lot of these veterans, they have a roster spot, I would say, pretty secure, I would think. So that was an opportunity for those players. You know, getting Matheson, Buchanan, Sinclair back, uh, Ashley Lawrence, Jordan Hightema. You know, those players are players you would think would be at the Olympics. So, I think then getting them back and seeing what they can do with the new coach and new tactics, 4-3-3, I think that's vital to see how Canada progresses and we'll see what happens. So kind of going right off of that, if you combine what we saw at this tournament with those additions, those people we expect to be in the starting lineup, as you kind of roll into the summer, what is a reasonable level of expectation for fans, supporters to put on this women's national team? They've, they've struggled a lot against the top 10 teams in the world recently, but it does feel like there's a bit of a trend in the right direction. But, but how encouraged or how you know, hopeful can women's national team fans be headed into the summer? I'm encouraged. I would not say I'm uh, massively encouraged. I'm just encouraged on a regular a level there. Uh, You look at the Olympics, you look at what they did at the 2012 Olympics, at the Rio Olympics, you know, they won a medal. They won two bronze medals, obviously going into Tokyo. They want to change the color of the medal. Uh, That's what they're telling us. And so I think they definitely have a shot. It's a small tournament. There's a lot of games coming in quick succession. You know, if you get on a a roll, you get on a hot streak, you can take down some of these teams. They beat Germany at the Rio Olympics. So on their day, they can definitely get the results. So I think, you know, as long as they ad- advance to the knockout stage, yeah, they certainly have an opportunity to go in and, you know, earn a medal, whether that's uh, bronze or a different color, we'll see. But yeah, they're in uh, They're in with a shout and I'm definitely encouraged and I'm hopeful that, um, you know, they'll be able to put on a good show for the fans uh, here in Canada. Moving on from that, just to kind of return to a bit of She Believes Cup talk, 
just kind of we got we got to see a first view into what Bev Priestman kind of how how she views this Canada team, what are, some of her philosophies are. And we saw, you know, 4-3-3. We saw more of a traditional formation. We saw an emphasis on, on midfield play. We saw an emphasis on, on, on fullbacks getting forward. What were your kind of impressions of Priestman's tactics? And are there, are there any areas you think that she could maybe tweak heading into the next games? I think communication is key. We t- spoke to... Uh... Zdorsky, Evelyn Viennes, and they said what a great communicator that Bev is. I think that's important because you need to have the players, you know, understanding the tactics and what the coach wants to do. And this is this is a new coach. You know, yes, she's been with Canada previously before going over to England. So I think there's some some little tweaks that the team will be working on, whether it's moving the ball up quicker to the forwards or, you know, connecting on some crosses or working on some corners. I think there's small areas where Canada will want to work on and improve upon. And so we'll see what Bev and the coaching staff are able to do. Uh, I'm not sure if they'll have a camp over in England before those two games. Hopefully they can get uh, the players together. I know the FIFA window is quite short, so there's not a lot of opportunity to kind of work and hone in on the tactics. So uh, hopefully uh, maybe they'll have some video sessions or something to kind of get a a sense of what Bev wants to do and kind of tweak a few little things here and there. Har, for uh, people tuning in who maybe didn't catch all of the matches at the She Believes Cup or are just kind of now getting caught up with women's national team stuff, what were some names, some players, maybe either young players or kind of the more unheralded players on the roster that kind of stepped up or exceeded your expectations that people should be watching out for to maybe play a greater role than you know, people might have expected heading into this whole Olympic cycle. I was impressed with, you know, um, Evelyn Viennes, you know, she's came in, I believe she made her first three appearances for Canada as a substitute off the bench. You know, she's a goal scorer. She's playing at Sky Blue FC in the NWSL. She's certainly some to, someone to watch. As I mentioned, Canada needs goals. So if she can kind of get going and get a form, I think she could be someone maybe on the cusp of making the Olympic roster. It's going to be tough. There's a lot of great uh, forwards quality up there. Uh, on the defensive end, I thought Gabrielle Carlo was impressive in the time that she had at the tournament. You know, you've got Lawrence and Alicia Chapman on the fullbacks there. But you kind of you're going to need some depth there, so I think maybe Gabrielle Carl could be someone. But I would say that I was most impressed by Vanessa Gilles, and we mentioned her at the top there. You know, she's only playing in her third Canada match there, and it was against the U.S. the top team, and she led both teams in clearances. You now her teammates were telling us that they call her the magnet because the ball just kind of sticks to her. So, you know, they're going to need some some depth at center back. I think Zadorsky and Buchanan, obviously the, the top pairing there. I know uh, Quinn can come in and play at that position, so that's some good depth. And yeah, Vanessa Gill, she's playing over in France, so she's getting some good minutes there. So I think she's someone definitely to keep an eye on. Those three there, uh, we'll see if they can make the roster and if they can improve their game. Um, Kind of going off of that, you mentioned a lot of defenders, you mentioned a lot of forwards. There's not so much chatter about the midfield, and that's kind of been a, a talking point dating back to last year, the year before that. 
back to the Kenneth Heiner Moeller days. So kind of what are your thoughts on how Canada can manage their midfield question? Because there's no doubt they have a lot of talented fullbacks, center backs and forwards, but there's, they need somewhere to kind of link it together. They need someone to get the ball up and they need someone to keep the ball out of there away from their defender. So what are your kind of your thoughts? I mean, Quinn was excellent in the, in the game they played against uh, the U S off of the top. And then obviously injuries hampered their tournament and that that was unfortunate to see. I mean, Desiree Scott, she always puts in a shift. I mean, there may be some doubts about what she can bring. Jesse Fleming looked great, but how do you kind of put together all of those pieces? Do you consider a Lawrence move into the midfield? Do you consider tactics? How do you kind of fix that area for Canada? No, I wouldn't move Lawrence to the midfield. I would keep uh, Ashley at her position because, you know, she's excelling there. She can really get up and down the pitch and kind of deliver crosses and kind of set up um, the offense there. So I think she's good where she is. You look at the midfield, you mentioned some names there. A lot of those players, they are veteran players. You know, they've been on the team for a while. Uh, Sophie Schmidt, Desiree Scott, Matheson, Fleming. I think they're going to be, you know, the key midfield pieces for Canada. So it's going to have to come from within. And I think maybe getting some more uh, training time together, getting into those matches uh, in April. I think that's going to be key. I know they had Desiree Scott and Sophie Schmidt. They kind of alternated those those games there in in Orlando. So I'm not sure if they're both going to be on the pitch or what kind of tactics we're going to see there. I think Jessie Fleming's the key. You know, she's she's a great ball distributor. She's really sees kind of has creative levels there, some great vision. So if she can link up, she can get the ball forward to some of the forwards. You know, that's going to be fantastic. I also think Christine Sinclair, well, whether or not we see her play a little bit deeper, closer to the midfield, I mean, that's an option. But I, I would prefer her, you know, kind of in the box and having the balls delivered to her as opposed to her having to go and get it. And so that distribution is going to come from the midfield. So that's going to have to be key and someone's going to have to set that up to see what happens there. I guess that that kind of comes towards the end of our women's national team discussion. But Har, is there anything we didn't touch on or things we missed that that stood out to you during the tournament that's that's worth bringing to the masses here? I would keep an eye on the the goalkeepers. Uh, I'm not super concerned. I'm a little concerned because all as we saw, Kaylin Sheridan uh, suffered an injury in that first uh, game. There, she had surgery up in New Jersey. Uh, after the tournament i believe it's a quad injury so we'll see uh, if she's able to get back on the pitch for those games uh, across the pond and we saw steph labay go down in the last game i believe she was holding her maybe right leg i'm not sure what the injury was but i know she played uh in a champions league game uh, for for her club team there in sweden yesterday and she also kind of had maybe a, a similar knock i'm not quite sure uh, but yeah, she had one of her teammates taking goal kicks. So uh, keep an eye on the, the goalie situation. We also have Sabrina D'Angelo in Sweden, who's recovering from uh, ACL surgery over there. So if she can get back, maybe she's in the mix for the goalie spots. But yeah, you've got three really strong goalies there. You've also got Riley Foster playing over in Liverpool and uh, Aaron McLeod as well. So, you know, there's a lot of goalkeeper depth, really strong quality. So there's going to be some stiff competition to see who earns those goalkeeper spots. So hopefully everyone's healthy and everyone's fit and able to be 
in prime position to earn those spots. So I keep an eye on the health of Canada's goalies because, you know, you need a healthy goalie to win some games there. Well, I have a few more uh, women's national team questions just to kind of round off this section. I mean, first of all, what do you make of Janine Becky's play? Because I think she's been excellent for Canada lately, but obviously she's been a bit snake bit in front of goal and she gets the ball into good areas, but she doesn't finish. And it's obviously an issue of frustration for her. It's an issue of frustration with fans. What do you make of her play with Canada? What do you think she'll need just to, to kind of get back up and running to where she was maybe two or three years ago for Canada? I think it could be better. I mean, she had some quality chances against the U.S., and she she flat out missed them. She didn't score. And I know she took to social media after that game against the U.S. You know, she kind of owned it, and, you know, she wants to be better. And so I think it's going to be a very big year for Janine Becky. You know, she's one of the, the leaders on that team there. She's played across the pond in Manchester, and I don't think she's really getting a lot of minutes out there. So... I think, you know, she needs to play minutes for her club team. And I think that kind of will translate to correlate how well she will do with Canada. So, you know, she's a very strong player. She's proven that she can score a lot of goals. And so Canada needs her to get going. And so hopefully maybe having Christine back will help. Uh, I wonder if it's maybe a bit of a confidence issue. So, uh, you know, if you score one goal, maybe you start coming in bunches. I do like the fact that after that final game, you know, she came to the Zoom call because we do everything on Zoom now. And she she owned it. She, she wants to be better. She stood in there. She took all of our questions. And so I think she's a great leader for Canada and they need her to get going. And so I'm confident that she will have, you know, a strong year for club and country this year. And lastly, my question is about the center backs because, I mean, Vanessa Giles, her emergence, I mean, Obviously, this U.S. game was kind of the coming out party for most of the masses. But even if you go back to last year, I, I recall pretty some pretty good performances in the Coupe de France or whatever that Tournoi de France was called when Canada played uh, France, the Netherlands, and Brazil in 2020. She 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 was strong there as well in the minutes she got to play. So with her for Bordeaux, who as of last uh, I last checked were third in the French league behind the the big two of PSG. And Lyon, and then you got Kadisha Buchanan, who's been regularly playing alongside Wendy Renard, and she's been killing it, frankly, for Lyon. They've been excellent. I mean, they a bit they're behind PSG in the league this year, which is unusual, but they've been rolling through the Champions League. And then lastly, you got Zadorsky, who's been playing for Tottenham. She's looked really good. Her passing ability is unmatched on this national team. What do you do with that? Do you roll between the hotter of the two the two three of uh, the two of the three center backs sorry and go with the, the you know the hotter hand which players are playing better or do you play all three together in a back three because i'm interested on your your thoughts on the back three because we saw it under kenneth heinermuller it wasn't good uh, they got battered by japan i think when they tried to use it they also got battered by brazil but with the emergence of Gilles now is it something they consider or do you stick with the back four and just rotate through the two of the more informed players. Alex, how dare you bring up the back three there? Because that I was I knew a it huge... would touch a nerve. I knew it would. <laughs> it was a bloody disaster under Kenneth Hardenwater. We were saying, you know, at the World Cup there, they can't play three at the back, you know. They get burned on the counter, and that's what happened against Sweden. So, you know, to have three at the back, you have to have three 
really strong center backs and full backs who can track back. And so I don't think they have that. I don't think they had that during the Kenneth Hunter Moeller era. And I don't think they have that now. So I would not play three at the back uh, unless you're going to play like a minnow and you can destroy them. Other than that, no. Uh, a 4-3-3, I think, is the formation that we're going to see. I would stick with uh, Zdorsky and Buchanan. Obviously, we mentioned how quick the games come. There's not a lot of turnaround. You know, maybe if there's a knock or maybe a suspension or something, maybe you can get uh, a Vanessa Gilles in there. So that's something to keep an eye on. But, you know, Zadorsky and Buchanan, they're Canada's bread and butter back there. You know, they play together for so long. They kind of read off each other. They know what they're going to do. And I think familiarity will be key. So I expect them to be uh, the anchors for Canada in the uh, back line there. And I expect them to have a, a, a fullback on each side. So it's four, not three. We'll have to agree to disagree on that one, but it's an interesting argument. The fullbacks, the fullbacks one is a good point. I mean, especially when Alicia Chapman, for example, she she can be a bit limited in in her tracking back. But I just do wonder personally: Do you play Ashley Lawrence and Jade Riviere two active fullbacks there, if that could work? But I mean, you bring up a good point why it might not work, and there there's arguments to be had for both sides. Sam, what do you think here? I need you to be the mediator. Well, I've been playing around with this in terms of the white caps and whether or not they should consider it. But uh, I, I have, I'll answer it this way. I think I have more confidence in the white caps ability to play three at the back than I do the women's national team. I already think they're thin enough at that position. I don't, I don't think you mess with it. I thought tactically the white caps are, pardon me. Now I'm conflating the two tactically, the women's national team looked pretty good. It was just kind of the execution, the sharpness, more time developing in that system that I felt like they needed. So I wouldn't mess with it at this point. I'd stick with kind of the road they're on, but I had one, I had one final kind of bonus women's national team question. And that was former white caps Academy prospect, Julia Grosso. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Harb, but I don't think she played a single minute at the, she believes cup. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So I was a little disappointed to see that. Seems like she's kind of on the outside looking in. Didn't get to play a lot because of COVID last year. I think the University of Texas only played like eight or ten matches. So uh, just thoughts on her role within the team. And it kind of, it seems like she's going to be on the outside looking in for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, that was something uh, surprising. I know me and some other colleagues that cover the team were wondering if she was going to get some minutes, and she didn't. So, yeah, as you mentioned, she could be on the outs because you need to get some minutes in there to see how well you're going to mesh with your, your teammates there. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen. We'll have to find out, and we'll have to ask Beth the next time she's on a Zoom call. Perfect. Well, I mean, on that note, we'll, we'll move on from the – the, the chatter there there's some good definitely some good talking points well we'll have to bring up the the three at the back at some time in the future because it's it's a debate worth having a multi, uh, you know in the right circumstances but next more canada soccer news over on the men's side at the club level there was a for a lack of a word a pretty just crazy situation going on at the moment with the the voyagers cup so uh Har, what are your thoughts on the uh, the postponement of the Voyagers Cup and that whole just snafu, that, that just absolute mess of a situation? Yeah, that was certainly a surprise announcement that we, we had earlier this week. Uh, I, I'm not really sure how that transpired or why they, CSA didn't see that, you know, in the future there. I know with our strict COVID protocols in Canada, there's a limitation on how many 
uh, players can be practicing at one particular time. So that was a, a surprise. I guess they need Toronto to be able to play in uh, the competition. So maybe they just wanted to fast pace this. Uh, hopefully the two teams can kind of forge together and have a game there. So uh, we'll see what happens, but definitely not a, uh, definitely a surprise uh, to learn of that. Yeah, I guess I'll add my thoughts. This is this is all alleged, but it, you know, because who knows what actually happened. But it does. It feels like Concacaf must have kind of knocked on the CSA's door and been like, "Guys, it's time to get it together. We can't wait any longer. Figure it out." And when CSA realized they weren't going to be able to figure it out in time, they just kind of went, "Okay, well, you know, we got to get this done somehow." And I, I guess this was the natural move. But just in terms of I mean, Canada Soccer and TFC, like, there's already a lot of people with pitchforks out out for their heads, right? So to have this move happen just is so bad from an optical perspective. I think in isolation, I can understand why they did it, but it just, uh, yeah, it doesn't doesn't really pass the smell test in terms of, you know, the optics of it. So uh, a lot of people are going to be rooting against TFC in the Champions League, I think, for sure. And I'd like to say, I don't know why they didn't play this game back in the fall. I mean, that was maybe the last time to play it. I know it's a little bit old and a little bit of a frozen tundra baggies, but you could have put 11 v 11 out on the pitch there. You know, it's kind of like pushing the, the, the can down the road for something and then kind of waiting for another opportunity. And, you know, this kind of blew up in their face. Uh, like I said, they should have kind of foreseen this coming and, you know, they have egg on their face. There's just so much wrong. Like you mentioned the fall. Um, I mean, I get it. It's the Canadian championship. You don't want to play the Canadian championship in like Hartford, Connecticut. I, it doesn't look sexy. It's not great optics, but you got to do what you got to do. TFC was playing MLS games in the U.S. They couldn't come up to, to Canada. And they, I mean, they could have in November and that's only because they got eliminated. You can't plan around that, but say in October, November, Forge was jet setting around North America playing CONCACAF leagues in Haiti and Honduras. They could have easily went to, to Hartford. They play the game, a one-off game. It's televised. You get it done. Even before Forge has finished their CONCACAF league, because then if Forge somehow wins and they, they're Champions League holders, and then they actually make the Champions League through CONCACAF League, and then you could have offered, okay, Toronto FC gets the Champions League spot. Forge could have got there. It would have been so straightforward, and instead, it was kind of like they hoped Forge would make it to the CONCACAF Champions League. They, they didn't know, shoot, we actually need to play this game, but we can't because it's offseason. There's just so much wrong. And Even looking back, I saw some interesting bones that Montreal fans are trying to pick that they should be in the Champions League because they're the title holders, and to to be fair, honestly, I don't disagree with them. In the U.S. for the Open Cup, they didn't try to do anything Open Cup related. They just gave it to the Open Cup holders. Why didn't they do that? There's so much just wrong on every side, and I can see why everyone's just so pissed off about it, unless you're TFC, that is, of course. I mean, it's just at the end of the day, I think the frustration is that you would hope that it's you know, Canada Soccer's job to have contingency plans in place, to have three or four different options available, you know, to be flexible to, okay, Forge makes it through, what are we going to do? Okay, TFC makes it far in the playoffs, what are we going to do? But it feels super reactionary, rather. It feels like they were just fingers crossed and hoping that by January, you know, February of this year that, oh, everything was going to be in a much better place and it'll be really easy to host a match then and 
yeah, I think we've all kind of covered at this point. It's just, you know, now we're seeing the result of this lack of planning, which is, which is a tough look, but, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully in years to come, this leads to a better championship, or at least we get some semblance of a, of a return to normal in the years to come. Cause we want to see the CPL against MLS matchups. Like I'm, I'm living for it. So. I mean, to, to last, last thoughts on, uh, on this, I think this could be, end up being ugly for TFC. They haven't trained for a week because of COVID outbreak in their team, and they're not going to train for another week. They have to go down to Mexico to play the the champion. I think like the defending Clausura champions who have been playing regularly since January, they could get smoked. They could lose a lot of players to injury. Honestly, if I was them, I would have considered declining and letting Forge go, but obviously for pride reasons, they want to win this tournament. They're going to go and who knows what's going to happen, but I, I think this could get ugly, but as bad as their preseason is, I mean, the Whitecaps can uh, certainly compete with them in terms of how tough their their preseason might end up being. And since since we're uh, since we're, we're going to shift our talk to the Whitecaps, and I mean, where do we start? Do we, we, we can talk about the training camp, just, I guess, storm that is awaiting them in the next few weeks in terms of, I think, 15 players missing, trying just to throw enough players on the field to have proper sessions. That's it, going to be quite a, an adventure, but before we got there, it was a pretty optimistic offseason for the most part. And uh, kind of how, how did you rate the offseason so far, Har? And kind of based off of that, what are your expectations heading into this new season? I thought the offseason was uh, quite typical in Whitecaps fashion. You get really excited that they're going to make a big move. They're going to bring in a, a new attacking offensive weapon. And then you get let down because it doesn't happen. <laughs> so that's what I thought there. Uh, Bruno Gaspar, he's going to be uh, very strong right back there. They have him on loan. So I think he's going to be a very key uh, player for them. You've got Ali Adnan on the left back side there. So, you know, they've got two of the best fullbacks starting in the league. So that's great. You know, they can get forward. They can distribute the ball up there. Uh, other than Lucas Cavallini up there, I don't know who's going to put the ball in the back of the net. So uh, we're waiting to see uh, the mysterious number 10. Who is that going to be? Is it going to be uh, Otavio? Is it going to be someone else? We'll have to see uh, what Axel Schuster has up his sleeve. So, yeah, I thought the uh, the offseason was uh, quite uh, usual from previous Whitecaps offseasons. Uh, obviously, it's in COVID time, so there's a bit of a challenge to try and bring new players in. And I know the Whitecaps have a consistent struggle with getting players' visas in here. So I know that's an issue of concern. Uh, they've been linked to a lot of players. Hopefully they get uh, some more uh, attacking options up top there. Uh, hopefully they don't wait till the summer because I think that could be uh, a mistake. We mentioned all the players that are going to be gone uh, representing Canada for the uh, Olympic qualifying, for World Cup qualifying. You're going to need some depth there. You're going to have to give the young players an opportunity. So. Uh, yeah, they need some new uh, players to come in there, and so we'll see what happens. Uh, they're definitely behind the eight ball because they don't have any preseason games. You know, they're going to have to go down to Utah. So it's it's key that they start off strong, uh, but I'm not sure they'll be able to. Uh, this is Mark DeSantos' third year, so, you know, he's he's got a, a tough job ahead of him again. So we'll see uh, what they can do. 
Har, the last time we had you on this show was was quite a while ago now, and it was just days after Mark Panis parted ways with the Vancouver Whitecaps, which, my goodness, feels like a long time ago now. But in terms of kind of front office maneuvers and personnel, I haven't had the chance to chat with you about what you thought of the Nikos Overhull signing, bringing him in, the the upgrades to the scouting infrastructure, the scouting system. Are you more encouraged about that? I mean, you, you talked about, you know, same old white caps in terms of the offseason. Do you think that these changes are positive ones in the long term? I think in the long term, yes, they are positive changes. You know, you need uh, a summer like that kind of in the recruit, recruiting stage to kind of help you get an overhaul and bring in some new players. So I think that's a key uh, acquisition for the white caps. Uh, the proof will be in the the pudding. So they've got to bring in these new players. You know, you can you can hire all these chefs and get them all in the kitchen, but you know, until you kind of get the new players in, it's a wait and see. And it's been like that for a while with this team. So you know, it's a good step. It's definitely needed. So we'll hopefully uh, he'll be able to get down to business and work with actual Schuster and uh, bring in some new uh, offensive weapons there. I mean, how tough is that visa situation that you mentioned earlier? Because it, it kind of, it, you think of someone like Diber Caicedo, he was signed, what, in December? There was rumors of him coming since November. It's March 11th, and I think his plan is for him to be in Vancouver within the next week. Like, that's absurd. And I mean, we were kind of joking pre-show that the Whitecaps signing, they should invest in a good immigration lawyer at this point just to get some of these players in. But how tough is just the fact that even last year there was before pandemic guys like Leonard Awusu, Ranko Veselinovic spent weeks and weeks just working on getting them in. Why has that been such a struggle for them? And how do you think that's kind of impacted their ability to make signings or at least announce signings that they've made and haven't just released yet? I myself, I don't own a visa credit card, so I've never had any issues <laughs> with visa. I don't know what the challenge is with the Whitecaps. I mean, they've had quite a a uh, lot of visa issues bringing in the players. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a thing to do with the NBCs or kind of getting uh, those kind of situations sorted. I'm not sure if it's because Vancouver is in the Pacific time zone. It's uh, one of the worst time zones you can be in for like calls and, you know, orchestrating with the rest of the world. I'm not sure if the, the visa person just doesn't like them. I don't know what the issue is. I'm not sure if it's a thing where, you know, you can pay for a fast track visa or if you can do another option. Because you look at TFC, you know, they've brought in players and they don't seem to have as big as an issue with the visas as the Whitecaps do. And also, I wonder, if you know that there's going to be visa issues, uh, why are you getting players in from countries where the visa issue is going to be a big hassle? So that's another thing I, I wonder. Uh, I don't know. We'll have to ask Axel Schuster uh, why the visa people are being uh, challenging for the Whitecaps and see uh, what he says. And hard just in terms of the uh, the season ahead, I'm curious for your thoughts on the Whitecaps moving from, you know, they set up in Portland at the end of last year. Now they're they're going to RSL instead and, you know, setting up a little more suburban location. The Whitecaps tease a little thing about, oh, the mountains look so similar. Like, this will basically be the same. Um, thoughts on just the prospects of playing down there. And then also, like, from a from a media perspective, 
not being there in person, not getting to see these matches and, you know, having to do what we're doing right now, which is, as you mentioned, you know, everything over Zoom call. I think they'll be better being over in Utah. Uh, I think there was a lot of protests in Portland uh, last fall and, you know, it kind of looked like an Armageddon. Obviously, the protests were very important and they were vital that they took place. But as a professional athlete, you know, it can be a little bit scary just being in your hotel and hearing what's happening. Uh, I don't know that the players were able to wander out a little bit. You know, when we flash forward to now, the U.S. is in a, in a better position COVID-wise than we are here in Canada. Uh, they're giving out uh, shots like the, like candy there. I know the Whitecaps might be able to get some shots when they're down there. So I think it's a better situation in Utah. Uh, I think they're going to be playing out of the uh, Rio Tinto in Sandy, Utah there. Uh, that's just outside of Salt Lake. So I'm not sure if they'll be staying, you know, kind of in the city there or on the outskirts, but it sounds like they're going to have the players' families go down with them and stay with them there. So I think that will be uh, terrific. You know, as long as your family's there, it makes the living situation better you know they don't have to come back here to vancouver they were going uh, from portland to vancouver sometimes just to get in some visits with their family so i think the whole utah uh, transformation will be will be better for the white caps uh, i would not say that the mountain range is on par with our beautiful mountains here so we'll have to see and i'm curious if uh, what it'll be like having fans there because i know the utah jazz are allowing I want to say just under 4,000 fans, and I believe 5,000 fans at RSL games. So uh, I don't know if Brian Meredith will be, or Zach McMath will be there. Uh, he could be a fan. So I think the whole Utah takeover situation, I think it's going to be good for the Whitecaps. And I mean, I'm surprised you didn't mention any little John references with all the shots you were putting out, but that's a, okay. that's a, whole, that's, that's a whole other story. But I mean, yeah, the, the Salt Lake situation is unique. I mean, Mark DeSantos has talked about it. I think it's going to be interesting to see the whole idea of bringing families because I think that's something that the players mentioned a lot last year. And it's it's just it's tough for, for Canadian teams to have to, to, to move off of like that and have to go away for, from home for four weeks or for four months, at least four months, probably just estimating. Because, I mean, they signed to play for Vancouver and living in Utah, I mean, it's nice, but it's no Vancouver, and there's there's a big reason why why players sign here. So, kind of moving on, what are your kind of your thoughts on the start of the season, the schedule? We got a taste of it this week. Portland and Toronto to start. That's not an easy first two games. Portland's playing in the Champions League. Toronto, as we know, is also playing in the Champions League. The Whitecaps aren't really playing exhibition games. So, kind of, what are your thoughts on the schedule? And do you think this puts an onus on Mark DeSantos? making sure that his team gets friendlies beat against USL teams, as he hinted at yesterday in his availability, just to, to get ready for these tough two games here. Yeah. It's a very key point that you made there with uh, Portland and uh, Toronto. They're going to have some games under their belt. You know, I think the Whitecaps definitely need to have some preseason games in there as well. I don't know uh, what the situation is like in Utah, who's available. I mean, I wonder, can they even play RSL for like a preseason game down there? So I think that's that's going to be key. You, you know, you're practicing against your teammates. It's it's good practice, but you can't really replicate a game situation there. So they definitely need to get some preseason games under their belt before they play Portland and Toronto because these two teams, are they're top quality teams there. 
they're consistently in the playoffs. They're always a threat against the Whitecaps. You know, they have game breakers. They have strong squads. And so, you know, that's going to be challenging. It, you just look at that second game. you got to go all the way down to Florida to play uh, Toronto. Obviously, it's a little bit closer flying from Utah. But, you know, that's another big uh, a road trip for the Whitecaps. And, you know, they weren't very good on the road. Uh, last year here in the uh, the Western Conference. I know it was a little different having, you know, not having games in Vancouver, but, you know, if you look at their last nine games on the road last year, one, eight, and no, three goals scored, and only two from open play. So, you know, they were shut out in seven uh, of those nine last road games there. So, I mean, you know, they've got to be better on the road. And so that will start in the Sunshine State, and hopefully they can get some results. You know, they were good at the the MLS's back tournament in Orlando, so maybe there's something there. But, yeah, they've got to get out of the gate strong. It's going to be challenging for sure. And so we'll have to see what Mark has up his sleeve there. Yeah, I guess jumping right off of that in terms of what Mark has up his sleeve, uh, one of the things Mark DeSantis has up his sleeve is a new assistant coach in Ricardo Clark, news that just dropped during us recording the podcast. Yeah, um, made made official just a couple minutes ago, and Mark had kind of talked about how they weren't in a hurry to hire someone, they wanted to find the right fit. Clark brings a different profile than Phil and Mark DeSantos, you know, more of a of a playing background, a guy who's played for the U.S. national team, a guy with tons of MLS experience, former super draft pick, um, done a lot of work in Houston and with U.S. um, development team guys at the under-20 level. So it seems like a a good fit, an interesting fit. We'll have to see how it all plays out. But uh, yeah, Har, your your kind of firsthand thoughts on on the signing and how that kind of rounds out the coaching staff. I think it's... It's a good signing. I'm glad they have a new voice in there, someone to kind of help out. Uh, yeah, we were wondering if they were going to bring in a, a new assistant coach. I know I, I'd asked previously. Uh, it's not, it wasn't going to be Andy Rose. So I think uh, Ricardo Clark, yeah, he's got a lot of MLS experience. He's represented the U.S. national team for some games there. You know, he's been a big part of the Houston Dynamo organization for a while. And so we'll have to see how he's utilized here with the Whitecaps what his kind of role is and what areas his expertise lie in. But yeah, you know, they've got Mark and Phil there. And so I think that's a, that's a good tandem. You add Ricardo Clark in there. And so that's a good mix. And then you've got uh, Yusuf back there with the goalies. I know you're a big fan of Yusuf there, Sam. Indeed, indeed. Other than his management of the Vancouver Whitecaps media match where uh, we were on the same team and he insisted on playing like a bunker encounter style that I wasn't a big fan of. But other than that, in terms of his actual coaching of keepers, I'm a massive fan. So we'll try to separate those two things. Just a Jose Mourinho disciple, okay? It's not for everyone, but... And I mean, kind of on the, the Ricardo Clark point, we always talk about the Whitecaps needing MLS experience on the field and the importance of that. But we never really mentioned about the importance of having it on, in the dugout. And is the Mark DeSantos, Phil DeSantos, Vanny Startini trio, they're all great coaches in their own right. But the reality is none of them had coached at the MLS level. So how important do you think is adding an, a coach with MLS experience to the dugout? Do you think that's something that will manifest into the players, especially 
with some of the new players who are going to have a voice that's been there, done that? Yeah, I think it's a very strong point you make there. Again, I think you need MLS experience because, you know, a lot of uh, the teams, you know, they want to find that next gem, that next strong player coming in from, you know, maybe South America or Europe. And, you know, they don't have the MLS experience. So having someone like Clark in the mix who can kind of share and kind of help them out, uh, that's great. And I think that will help uh, fill a mark as well. So I think it's it's a good uh, acquisition for the Whitecaps. You look at the roster, you know, they have MLS experience on this roster for the Whitecaps, but, you know, I wouldn't say it's a vast amount of experience in MLS. You've got our Rusty Tybert, Jake Nowinski now, uh, Andy Rose, you know, those guys have been in the league for, for a while now. So, you know, they can help out as well for some of these new players and kind of figure out um, all these rules and travel and whatnot. So even the smallest things, it, it makes a difference for sure. Yeah, as one of the youngest rosters in the league, I like adding the experience through the coaching staff rather than you know necessarily rounding out the roster with more MLS vets. I mean, unless if, if it's a good fit, then it's a good fit in terms of a player, but I like that they've kind of added that MLS experience from a different department. Because yes, you've got Russell Tybert, you've got Toussaint Ricketts, you've got Andy Rose, but um, another fresh voice, someone with you know just like a, a massive chunk of MLS experience, a guy that's seen it all in this league and seen how it's developed over the last 20 years, I think is really invaluable. And, and I think we're going to see some, I think this could you know make a difference on the pitch. I think we could see some things happen differently because of this signing. I, I'm excited for this one. So kind of pivoting off of that, we'll, we'll chat just to, to round off the Whitecaps chat, talk MLS experience. Well, we'll talk about guys who MLS experience hasn't started yet, or they may or may not end up starting or not. So first, we want to t- we'll talk about the number 10s in a second, because I mean, I just feel like we have to talk about the number 10s. It's everything that's been written on the Whitecaps right now is almost, it almost feels like it's prefaced with, well, what that number 10 though, like everyone knows the number 10, it's the, it's a the dirty word the secret word the public word i don't know what it is but as for pl- pl- players actually rumored to come in kyle alexandra we talked a bit about him on our last episode and to be frank we were quite befuzzled uh, we were at a lack of words i mean i personally had no idea what their intentions were with that signing and i mean that's kind of what we get when the the news dropped like while we're recording the podcast but i've had the week to kind of research he seems like a decent acquisition you know, with a few caveats, especially on the financial side and in the roster spots department. But you asked Mark DeSantos about that yesterday. He uh, he gave his classic non-committal answer, which basically means they really want to sign him and they're working their hardest to bring him in. So, Har, what are your thoughts on the Kyle Alexander rumored signing and what do you think he could bring to the Whitecaps? The key was that Mark didn't completely shoot me down. So that leaves a small glimmer of hope. That's all I think a, re- a really big glimmer of hope. He, he's he's really bad at at kind of. He has a system where if he won't deny things outright, it means they're after the player. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, he's a he looks like a promising young player that can certainly help the Whitecaps. You know, they need uh, someone to link up with Kava, and I believe he said when we spoke to him that you know, he does his best goal scoring or he's most effective when he has a, a comparable number 10 there working in behind him. So, you know, they don't have that right now. So if Chow Alexander can come in and 
provide that and kind of take over from uh, what Freddie Montero was able to do with Kava, that'd be fantastic. Obviously, I'm not comparing them to one is an MLS legend and one has never played an MLS minute. So uh, it's a lot of big shoes to fill. And so you look at Alexander, if they can get that across the line, that's another strong player. You have Cecido coming in there. You have Dahomey, uh, Ricketts. I expect Theo Bear to take another big step this season. So you have some some players with potential who kind of need to step up and take that the next level there in their career. So there's certainly potential. There's a lot of young guys there, but it's it's seeing if you know they've got lightning in a bottle with some of these new acquisitions. And I know when we talked to Mark about Sucido, he kind of tempered expectations there you know because it takes a while for these players to adjust to mls you know they're coming to a new league and a new city a new team you know just figuring out where you can get your groceries and setting up your banking you know even that's a challenge for some of these new players so uh i ricardo clark having him here will help as well so yeah if they can get that across the line you know that's fantastic so We'll have to keep that uh, posted and see how that goes. And I mean, lastly, to finish off the number 10, it has to be mentioned. We have no idea who it's going to be at this point. Obviously, the Otavio links would be great if they could could materialize. No one's really expecting much there. Obviously, Chiquinho is an interesting name. This supposed unnamed South American player from either one of Peru's, Paraguay, something. We nailed it down because it was one of the smaller nations, so it wasn't a Brazil or an Argentina. All these names seem good in theory, but nothing's happened. It's March 11th. The Whitecaps playing 40 days. They've Now Axel Schuster has gone from saying he wants to have one by the start of the season to, if needed, they'll go into July. What do you make of all of this search? Like, how, what, what do you, yeah, what do you make of all that? Obviously, they, they should get one in now, and if that's, if they can, they should go for that, but do you, how how do you think it'll, it'll affect the team negatively if they wait for July 1st and try to get the right guy? Or do you think they should just lock someone in and bring him in and just work with that? They seem to be quite focused on Otavio and maybe getting him on a free transfer uh, in the summer there. And I think if you wait that long and, you know, he doesn't want to come to the Whitecaps, that is a, a bad situation there. You're putting... Uh, all of your sauerkraut in one basket there. And I don't know that that's a good idea. So, you know, we've been hoping for a number 10 since the last season ended. Uh, I don't know why they're not maybe getting a different player moving on from Otavio. You know, if he has offers in, you know, Syria A over in Europe, I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't want to pick that level of league and even Champions League if that's a possibility for him. So, yeah, I, I would hope that they can bring in a number 10 sooner rather than later. I'm not optimistic. And as we mentioned earlier in the show, you know, if they get a player, if they get someone maybe tomorrow, you still have to figure out these visa issues. So it could take a while for that player to even, you know, come and train with the Whitecaps and get in the starting lineup. And you have to worry about fitness and the player's health. So you know, the time to do that, the time to get a number 10 was clearly in the offseason. So they would be ready for preseason and the start of the season. So, you know, the longer they wait to bring in a number 10, it's not good. So I would hope that they do that soon. 
I don't know what the talks are behind the scenes, you know, the visa issues and who wants to come here and, you know, do they want to go to Utah? I don't know what's happening there. I will have to ask uh, Axel Schuster and get an update there. Yeah, just in terms of the whole number 10 situation, we are going to get to speak with Axel Schuster tomorrow. He's doing a little roundtable availability, so maybe some light is shed in that regard. I almost feel like at this point, it might be better for the Whitecaps to wait until that summer window. Because if you if you predicate everything you're doing now on bringing in a player that you're not even sure you're going to get and you kind of put your season plans on hold, that could just mess up the whole start to the year. I wrote an article a couple days ago about how life can go on without a number 10 in the meantime. And I think that the Whitecaps are almost best served just to focus on that plan, focus on tactics where they can they can play, they can be competitive for now, and then integrate that player into the squad later. And so, Har, I'm, I'm similarly concerned to you where if they only have one or two guys they're targeting in the summer and those guys fall through, then that's a really big problem. But I feel like if they're able to execute on a player in the summer and if Schuster and Overhull have have a contingency plan, they have the way they're going to play at the start of the year, they have how they're going to bring a 10 into the roster, then that makes me confident. But my, my worry would be that they whiff in the summer like they have during so many windows in the past. And that's just where that... You know, that trust hasn't been built yet. We're not ready to rely on them executing when it comes down to the wire. So that that's, I think, the, you know, the real crux behind this is until they show they can do that, it, it's going to be a problem. So, I mean, on that note, I think we've kind of, uh, we've exhausted all of the, the white caps and Canada soccer and Canada women's national team talking points. I mean, in-depth chat as always. And, uh, Har, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us on today's show. We'll certainly uh, love to have you back uh, on. Definitely, maybe sooner between uh, the last appearance. I think you came on uh, eight or nine months ago, so hopefully a lot sooner than than that. But uh, thanks once again for that. I mean, I guess you could uh, end off with shouting out where people can find your your latest and greatest work. Yeah, it's always a great uh, chat to come on with you guys and talk football, women's football, the Whitecaps. Uh, anything it's always nice to see you guys i miss seeing you guys at training at games you know all that banter you know even throwing back a few beers at the bar sometimes i miss that with you guys so thank you very much for having me on uh you can find my work at equalizer soccer uh daily hive you know covering uh, all sorts of football and so thanks again for having me on yeah heart heart's always a pleasure Sorry to cut you off there, Alex, but yeah, make make sure to check out all our work, especially, you know, no better source in terms of the women's game in Canada. So, you know, make sure to check that stuff out. And uh, yeah, we'll have to have you on again soon, especially if there's some salacious Whitecaps news at some point. So well, if you like women's hockey, I've got some women's hockey articles dropping at the Ice Garden, uh, Canada stuff, USA stuff. So uh, check it out. So there we have it, our chat with Harjeet Johal, and there's a lot to go over. I mean, starting way back at the the national team talk to start, there was some interesting analysis on on how Canada started the Bev Priestman era. I mean, her and I didn't exactly have the same take on the the three at the back situation, but I mean, she brought up some excellent points to why Canada should stick to the four through three. Definitely convinced me that I could uh, to, towards a long term vision of why that could make sense, and then over to the Canada soccer talk and the, the white caps news. There's just so much to dive into and 
it was excellent just to to have that to have her voice on today to give her always hard hitting and very punny answers at times today. Yeah, I was going to say something about that if you didn't. Uh, there's lots of little Easter eggs throughout the show there in terms of little references and side notes. So that was good, but you know, also very caught up on 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 the women's side on white cap stuff you know really kind of in the know about a lot of those things and i certainly felt like i came away i i watched the she blues matches and i had some thoughts but i but i come away now i think with a greater perspective on what that meant what we can look forward to this summer things we should maybe be a little bit concerned about but overall the bev priestman era the way it started i think i'm i'm moderately encouraged right i mean there, there were a lot of positives it's a it was never going to be a perfect start. Not it wasn't like everything was going to fall into place. You know, they weren't going to beat the US 3-0 in their in their first match. It just wasn't going to happen, but so many good little takeaways and and if this is the starting point, then I'm I'm super excited. It was it was exactly that. It was a good starting point. It was tough missing so many good players. You would have wanted to see how they'd react to the new tactics or the new system etc etc but we saw good things from young players and that's always nice to see in tough environments i think in situations where they had every reason to fold they instead stood up to the plate and aside from 20 tough minutes against brazil in their third game at the first half they played five and a bit good halves of soccer which is always great to see they look so much more fluid more dynamic than they ever did under kenneth heiner muller and it kind of showed that maybe as tough as it was to have the, their Olympic dream postponed a year because of the pandemic, just getting a new voice in and kind of giving a different look could be a blessing in disguise for these players. So that's very good to see. Now I'm looking eagerly forward to, to April with the, the, the England game and also the Wales game, more so the England game because they're a top 10 team. Canada's known struggles against top 10 teams. They're going to face England at the at the Olympics, probably, or at least it's going to they're going to be one of the seven other top 10 teams participating at the Olympics. This is an excellent test. Hopefully they have their full squad. Priestman gets to put out who she wants and we get to see what this Canadian team is really made of. Yeah, I feel like this this year, you know, I don't want to say year off, but year delay might have been a bit of a, a blessing in disguise in terms on hitting the reset button. You've still got some of the veteran players on the roster with a lot to give. You've got some young players coming up. You have players, you know, in Europe for their clubs that have really developed. It, it feels like things are coming together, and uh, that's maybe not the case so much as we talked about in terms of the Canadian Championship. Things very much didn't come together there, and I think we kind of covered it. I mean, what a mess. And then in terms of the Whitecaps, the coaching news was exciting. Wasn't expecting to talk about that in the show, uh, but I, I'm really just on a you know, first basis kind of level looking forward to how that's going to work. And, you know, we're going to continue to track um, the Whitecaps off-season development storylines as they round through the preseason. And uh, there'll maybe be some good things to touch on after we get to speak with Axel Schuster tomorrow. Exactly. There's a lot to go over. I mean, Voyager's Cup, we could go for hours on just all of the failures and all, all everything that's gone on there it's just yeah it hasn't been a very pretty situation but ultimately like i, I kind of mentioned with tfc this could end up being a little worse for them than they actually expect so I, I don't know why they they're so you know intent on getting these champions league games because it's maybe not cause for celebration is what yeah you're basically i mean up 
compared to what some fans are thinking, some fans are understandably excited about Champions League. But had I been, hadn't this been the Whitecaps, for example, in this situation, as much as I like them to play Champions League, this just isn't really a year where it's just a year where if you miss out, you're not crying over it because a there's no fans, so you're not getting that Champions League experience. The which is why we love the Champions. I think back to when the Whitecaps and. 2016 2017 they were in the champions league it was just fun to go to the games and watch them compete against other teams from Concacaf. plus you mentioned the the pandemic the travel the injury woes the fact that well in this case they're playing one of the best teams in the tournament with a haphazard preseason no no preparation games like this could get ugly so there's no reason of dragging it out and hey if toronto wins fair play i'll give them all the credit in the world because they have their backs up against the wall in this situation, but it, it just seemed a bit a bit forced. And as for the new coaching hire, Ricardo Clark, it's just a lot to like there. Again, like we said, there's a lot of experience. He's a diverse hire, which is always good to see in the coaching staff. That's not that's not always been the case in the past, but he also takes off the the the, the boxes of being someone who knows the league. He knows and he knows what's going on. And who knows, you could kind of look at this hiring being an impact of the, what the black players for change coalition has done because it's good to see a black person former player hired that's something they've mentioned as being an issue of theirs in the past so kudos to the white caps for stepping up there and in terms of his, his resume he's got a strong resume i think this is a good job for him to to kind of get into uh, this coaching at, at an mls level and who knows maybe this could be a springboard towards a long-term coaching job, maybe with the Whitecaps or another one as a head coach somewhere down the road. Yeah, it's a it's an exciting hire. It's a yeah, we we could see him as the head coach of the Whitecaps in a few years' time. Who knows? But uh, we're gonna look to be back again soon, I think, with another episode of the Third Sub as we kind of keep our preseason coverage rolling. So stay tuned for that. And uh, thanks to our guest Har for coming on, and thanks everyone for listening. Uh, you can find me as always at samuel underscore rowboat on twitter you can find our podcast at third sub pod on twitter and uh yeah i kind of i mentioned in the interview with har but i did a piece on how the white caps could survive life without number 10 looking at some data from american soccer analysis they do really good in-depth stuff and they had this five-part piece on where goals come from and so i kind of based my strategy on how the Whitecaps could live without a number 10 based on that data. So if you're into that kind of side of things, the analytics, make sure to check it out. Um, if you're not, well, then so be it. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much it for me. Uh, over to you, Alex. And yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Alex Gungarus. I got BTS Fan City, btsfancy.com, keeping my fingers nice and busy on the keyboards lately. Lots of Canada soccer, Whitecaps etc etc lots of lots of stuff in those regards and for those listeners out here fans of the canadian men's national team fans of the canadian olympic team fear not we're gonna discuss more in depth in in the coming days really first of all the u23 squad the release of that what that means we didn't touch on that at all and that's certainly something we want to talk about what lies ahead for canada down in mexico for those qualifiers and then shifting our attention to the men's national team we have two vital hugely important world cup qualifiers against bermuda and the cayman islands both in florida they're returning to sunny florida as many of the national teams canadian men's and women national team have had to lately they're going to florida so we're going to be following along with that we may have some more guests to come in and chat about it with us but if you like the to hear more about that fear not 
somewhere between episode 76 and 83 i'll say just as a wide range you're gonna get canada men's national team content so stay tuned for that and we'll catch you on the other side yeah thanks for listening everyone